Safety Third is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Okay, so Elizabeth, I have been crushing new tunes recently. What have you been listening to? Because I'm not really a music person, what? so I don't know what's hot right now. What or... does that even mean? I don't. What are you saying? Well, I mean, I don't really listen to music. That's like saying that you're not into air or something. Like, do, do not forget Shakespeare, Elizabeth. Remember Lorenzo in The Merchant of Venice? The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. Okay, so... The motions of his spirit are dull as night, and his affections dark as Erebus. Let no such man be trusted. And... A scene. Thank you very much. You're welcome very much. <laughs> and your point. Really? Really? No reaction? I just crushed Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean, I think you know that you're obviously ridiculous. And the fact that you had this verse <laughs> well, handy is concerning. And Okay, but don't go down that rabbit hole, okay? So the, the point is, like, a few weeks ago, my Spotify prompted a playlist it created for me. Like, your top songs of 2018 or something. Okay, so I'm assuming that there was, like, a lot of teeny bopper-style pop and then, like, 80s tunes. No. 80s tunes, correct. Teeny bopper, pop, no. Lady pop, yes, probably. But, okay, that's not the point. The point point is that I was, you know, styling out with all of those awesome tunes, right? But then all of a sudden, like, a hammer, this Brandy Carlisle tune called That Year came on. And, and Brandy is this badass folk rock singer songwriter she's awesome i absolutely love her music but that year is really tough because it is one of her saddest damn songs dude it it is heavy it's it's all about how she dealt with the death of a friend who committed suicide uh her grieving process and confusion through it all and just like every emotion around the event so here's the chorus you could have taken a long break instead of a long drop from a high place. Ten years, I never spoke your name. Now it feels good to say it. You're my friend again. Wow. Yeah, I know. It is heavy. And listening to the song got me thinking. Confronting and dealing with death is one of the hardest things we'll ever have to do in life. I mean... That's true for me. And I have never been good at dealing with it. Today, we're going to talk with Josh Jesperson. Maybe that name rings a bell. Maybe it doesn't, but I think it should. Remember pro skier Chris Davenport's Colorado 14er record? Remember that snowboarder who broke it in lightning quick time? Josh is that dude. Josh is also a Navy SEAL. And because of that, no stranger to loss. He has an idea about what comes after death that flips grief on its head. I believe in living for my friends who have died. How can we live for those we've lost? How do we best honor our loved ones? This is going to be a doozy. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them.
I grew up in um, north, northeast, north central Pennsylvania, way out in the country. Um, most most of the years I grew up was in a, a small Quaker town called Millville. It was like population of nine hundred people. Yeah, way out in the woods, farming, just rural rural community, kind of kind of super country, super redneck where I grew up in the in the in the best way of the term. Not <laughs> well. How would you describe the best the best version of that term? There's a lot of people that you know eat deer meat mm-hmm. to get by. Um, there's a lot of people that are just scraping by on whatever jobs they can. Um, there's obviously people where I grew up that do well, but it's kind of just like a low income area and, you know, people kind of live more in nature and with the outdoors, um, in a different way than, uh, a lot of other people who recreate outdoors can even fathom, you know, like, yeah, like they kind of, they kind of live and breathe the outdoors rather than just are fueled by the outdoors. So Josh was a happy kid. He was outdoorsy, really athletic and into sports. He was pretty carefree. According to Josh, he had a great childhood. You know, basically when I was a kid, like my dad was my hero. Yeah. Um, I did. I did everything, everything to impress him. Um, he was like my soccer coach. You know, he signed me up for wrestling. I did every sport as hard as I possibly could to you know, show him my worth, like show him like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a good son. I can do all these things, you know, to a level that's going to keep you proud. And, you know, every time I'd score a goal or whatever, he had this funny thing. He'd say like, that's my boy, you know, to whoever was around him, like really, really proud, you know, like that, <laughs> that kind of proud, proud, proud dad thing. Like that's my boy. Yeah. Yeah. And so God, I mean, I'll, I'll I tried my hardest to hear that as many times as I could. My dad wanted to take me hunting. It was father-son thing. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point we were at a gun shop and we picked up the rifle that I was going to use. It was a lever action 3030. It's kind of almost an antique gun. It was like decades old. First time I went out hunting was with my mom, actually, because my dad was at work. We went out small game hunting, um, like for squirrels and rabbits and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because we lived way out in the country, we just, all we had to do was walk out our backyard. Cause I also, we were backed up to 10,000 acres of state game land. Wow. And, um, deer season came up. And so my dad and I went out hunting one day. So like I said, we just walked out of the back of the house and, um, he didn't grow up hunting. So he didn't really know much about it or, you know, exactly how to hunt, like where to go sit or or how to drive deer or how to mm-hmm. archery or hunt, you know, wait for deer, whatever, the different types of hunting. He didn't really know. We were just kind of walking out in the woods. Mm-hmm. I remember walking out a couple hours and we sat on this tree and we had lunch together. We kept walking further out in the woods and we're kind of in the center of this state game land. It's a, it's kind of a big drainage. We uh, moved around a couple times and we kind of got to this ridge and we decided to like sit down you know, just wait for deer. And he was kind of slightly downhill, um, for me. And I went up to, uh, to go walk over to him and, um, on, on my way over, I kind of tripped and fell and my gun went off and 
I looked up and my dad was on the ground. And didn't even comprehend for a second what had just happened. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was joking with me. I, th- <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, dad, what are you doing? Ha ha. Not ha ha. I just, I didn't know what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And it took me a second to, to realize what the hell just happened. And I ran over to him and I, you know, found him on the ground with, um, a lot of blood and, and two holes in his neck, one on either side. And I started screaming at the top of my lungs for anybody to come help me, anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, we were out in the middle of the woods, completely alone, and I'm there trying to hold hold these holes and keep anything in. And, you know, I'm trying to get him to say anything. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, like, for God to help. and I wasn't necessarily religious but in those moments you start saying please god help his eyes there was nothing in him nothing at all but i'm still like not giving up you know because i this whole moment is exploding around you you don't i don't have no idea what just happened i just it just happened and now i'm in it and and finally some other hunter showed up and he uh you know, we got to start doing CPR. So, so there I am, you know, a 12 year old kid in the woods doing CPR on my dad that I had just accidentally shot. And God, it was just 12 years old, you know, going through (laughs) that. And so we're doing CPR, you know, I'm, trying to block the holes and he's pumping my dad's chest and I'm trying to breathe life back into him while I'm watching it fade away in his eyes. And I mean, it's we did CPR for, I don't know how long. And then, um, some other hunter ran out of the woods to go get help. And to me, this is all happening like so fast. Yeah. You know, but it was hours, hours. And next thing I know, the the first responder pulled me away and had me stop doing CPR and put a shirt over my dad's face, you know, and that was like... Yeah. That was the the moment where he's dead. Oh, my God. You know, I realized right then and there, (laughs) it's never never coming back never going to hear anything never going to see anything that's my boy is not it's never going to happen again
You ever been in a state of mind where there's nothing? You know, like, mentally in your head, there's not a fucking thing but void, but black. Yeah. And that's, that's like, where my head was at walking out of the woods. Just don't know where I was going. Don't know where I wanted to be. I was just going. I was leaving the woods trying to get, not trying to get anywhere. Don't know. You know, I finally got home, and in there I was waiting for my mom to show up, um, which was hard, too. You know, I, fuck, every, every ounce of my body wanted to see her and wanted to hug her and wanted to, you know, have my mother's embrace, but at the same time, I felt like I took something from her. You know, I felt like... I felt like I changed her life so drastically in that moment, and it was my fault, and it was it was on me. And so that was, that was fucking heavy, too. When my first uncle showed up, I was... I was hiding in the basement um, because I I killed his brother in my mind. You know, I yeah. I was hiding. I didn't. I was so afraid to see them, and man, I was not in a good place. I was I was a twelve year old kid, and. That would set me down a path for a couple years. Understandably, the family was devastated, but they told Josh that it was all a horrific accident, and they stressed that it was not his fault. Still, Josh could not shake the feeling. He couldn't get rid of the shame and trauma. Outside of sports, I didn't give a shit in school. I was just barely skating by in school for years, and um, I didn't. I didn't give a a flying fuck what anybody thought about me. Yeah. I couldn't give two shits if somebody told me to turn my homework in or if somebody told me to, you know, go clean the bathroom or something. I just, fuck you. You know, that was like, I guess that's kind of what I thought. And what that resulted in um, was, you know, me getting in trouble, a lot of bad grades. Yeah, I'd party a lot. So I was staying out late at night and doing stuff like that. And But what ultimately happened was it started turning me into this asshole of a son. So by high school, Josh's relationship with his mother was strained to say the least. Constantly getting into trouble at school and with the cops will do that to a parent-child relationship. In his teens, Josh was arrested a handful of times for things like drinking and smoking weed, and he was put on probation. One night at home when Josh was 17, he got into it with his mom. He can't remember the specifics, just that he was being rude and disrespectful. That's when one of his mom's friends who was at the house asked Josh to step outside. And then, without saying anything, he punched Josh square in the face. Too bad for him. I was a high school wrestler in Pennsylvania and immediately had him tapping out (laughs) on the ground, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know like that that punch to the face really kind of it pulled me in really it kind of really made me realize like hey kid 
you uh you need to treat your mother right you need to treat her better because you know what she doesn't deserve the shit you're giving her and you need to change for her because she's been going through this also and she's on this ride with you yeah and you know what she's the only one trying to help you out but josh still had some trouble to get into while he was on probation the cops searched his house and found some weed in court, the judge gave Josh two options, jail time or the military. Orange isn't really Josh's color, so he chose the military, and he found his way to the Navy SEALs. Literally the night before I was going to go to the Marine recruiter, I saw there's this old Discovery Channel Bud's Class 234 special. Um, and I saw that, and I was like, wow, that is way cooler than the Marines. I'm going to go do that instead. And I knew absolutely nothing about it. I was just like, that looks really cool. That looks like a really awesome way to serve your country. How how could it possibly look cool? Because I've seen those those shows, and it basically shows people like all sandy rolling around in the beach, like carrying logs and like doing just, it looks kind of terrible. And, <laughs> and it, it's like interesting to watch because you're safely like eating popcorn under a blanket on your couch. But you somehow, you're like, that's awesome. I want to do that. What clicked? <laughs> it was just, you know, I had this one instructor in Buds that he used to say this one thing to us. Buds doesn't find students. Students find Buds. Because just like you're saying, you're watching this video of somebody being wet and sandy, carrying logs down the beach, swimming for miles, carrying boats on their head. Who the hell wants to do that? That's stupid. Right. But I saw that, and I'm like, that looks so hard. I want to put myself through that. Yeah. I want to go do something incredibly hard and challenge myself. Because you know what? Deep down internally... I know that I wanted to hear, at least in my head, again, that's my boy. Hmm. You know, I, I pretty much ever since that happened, I've deep down inside been trying to prove myself to my dad. Saying you want to become a Navy SEAL and actually becoming one are two very, very, very different things. That BUDS class Josh referred to is basic underwater demolition training. It's considered the hardest, most difficult training in our military. The Navy is pretty hush-hush about the specifics, but BUDS is a six-month-long course that's split up into three different phases. The first is the toughest. It's eight weeks of physical and mental conditioning that peaks halfway with something called Hell Week. Two-thirds of Navy SEALs usually quit during that week. You're cold, you're tired, you, you know, have no idea when the suffering is going to end. Right. And I got myself through those moments um, with a consolation because I always attributed the consolation of Ryan to my dad. Every time, you know, we were laying in the surf, you know, just sand in every crack and crevice of your body and totally freezing locking arms with the guy next to you trying your hardest to stay warm I would just be staring up at Orion and I would just go to that blank spot in my head where yeah. nothing else matters but the twinkle in those stars and how would you characterize your time with the SEALs what were some of the highs what were some of the lows my time in the military was 
one of the best chapters of my life, 100%. But, you know, being in the SEAL teams and in the military during a time of war, the main theme is death. Um, It's ever-present, and I didn't know exactly what I was getting myself into. Coming up after the break, Josh struggles to find balance and understanding as a soldier. Josh went to boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois, and Bud's in Coronado, California. After that, he was stationed at SEAL Team 4 in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Even though some of the biggest tragedies in my life were during that time, the greatest brotherhoods I've ever formed and the greatest friendships and some of the most fulfilling deeds are also during that time. I'd love to tell you about Adam Smith. You ever ever have a friend who... No matter who meets this friend or who you know is friends with that guy, he's always the best one. He's always the one that everyone is like, that dude's who I want to be like. Yeah. You know, that dude. Absolutely. (laughs) That dude inspires me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Adam was the epitome of a barrel-chested freedom fighter. He, uh, (laughs) (laughs) He was a rootin' tootin' frogman all day long. And um, I first met Adam when we were in Buds, and uh, my class was like this class that had formed up for like six months, and I showed up late, so I didn't know anybody. But the first time I met Adam, I was just walking down the hallway at our barracks, and um, (laughs) this dude walks by with a case of beer, and he's like, yo, man, you want to come have some beers? And I was like, hell yeah. Man, we just immediately hit it off. Adam and Josh's friendship deepened after that first meeting. Once they passed Buds, they were in the same platoon. That meant they spent tons of time with one another and went on every training trip together. They even bought a house in Virginia Beach. They would hang there between deployments, throw parties. It was the meeting place for their friends and family. Josh and Adam were deployed together in Iraq and then Afghanistan, but they were stationed at different operating bases during that second deployment. Josh and Adam's teams would operate as quick reaction forces, or QRFs, for each other. Basically, if Adam's crew needed support, Josh's would come to help, and vice versa. In Afghanistan, Josh's QRF was going to back up Adam's team during a night mission. Uh, at about 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., can't remember for sure, somebody was running around, slamming on all the doors, saying, he low down, he low down. But then we all woke up and we went into our our planning space and up on the you know, our TVs, we had the ISR footage of a, of a Bernie helicopter and still didn't know details. Um, still weren't really sure what happened or what was going on. And we're standing in this planning space and phone rings and uh, our LT is our officer in charge. He picks up the phone and, you know, hear a pin drop in the room because we're just waiting, you know, we're just all staring at him and, you know, all it is the uh-huh. Roger. Copy. And he hangs up. And um, this LT of ours, he's a guy that we all look up to and respect. You know, he's a stone-cold frogman. And and uh, he says, you know, listen up, everybody. We, uh, a helicopter went down, and we have casualties. And um, 
just as he started to say further, you know, he started breaking up in his voice and we knew it was bad because to make this man who's leading a, a SEAL platoon in combat start breaking up, it, it had to be something bad. So he started rattling off names and turns out we had lost three men on that helicopter. Um, Blake McClendon, Dennis Miranda, and Adam Smith. And it was, it was hard. It was to hear those words come out of his mouth was just hit you like a ton of bricks. Not to mention we lost three guys, three really incredible human beings and strong men. And, uh, you know, the third name just happened to be Adam. And we all had a minute and I went outside and I don't know if some people do, but I didn't cry in war. You know, I, I, we didn't have the time. We didn't have the time to let any emotions out. It was, I just went outside for a quick 30 seconds and, you know, caught my breath and I think there were some two by fours and I grabbed one and I smashed it. And, uh, and that was about it. That was, that was all the emotional release that I was able to get. And, you know, we went back inside and it was, it was okay. What do we do now? Now, what do we do to help the rest of the guys on the ground? So we started scrambling and the hardest part of that day for us was getting ready and waiting Mm -hmm. and not going. They didn't end up needing us to go, you know, because they were able to handle everything and, you know, you don't want to put more people at risk and there's all these things that come into play, but all we wanted to do was go there and be there and help out and do what we can for the guys on the ground who are also our brothers still alive and do do what we can for the guys who died. And that was so fucking frustrating there's one survivor um everybody else on board was killed yeah um three navy seals and another naval special warfare guy an interpreter and the whole flight crew uh was lost in that helicopter that day and uh we had one guy make it out alive and that was devastating We had a memorial service for uh, for the boys up at this base, and they flew me in for it, um, <laughs> which was funny because they were like, you have to shave for this. Um, because, you know, our units, we don't shave when we're in those situations, and we just grow out big, fat beards. Hmm. And um, <laughs> so they made me shave. But I, I was coming from a fob, which had no hot showers, and and stuff like that. So I was super grimy. I had my op camis on. I had a pistol on. I had grenades on my belt. And I'd left this, like, huge gangly mustache because I knew Adam would just laugh his balls off if he saw me, like, trying to give a presentable <laughs> speech to all these, you know, high-ranking officers, you know, about his life. 
you know, just standing there looking like I was, I knew I would have loved it. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a good moment, though, to go up there and, uh, you know, let all these high-ranking guys know how amazing this this person was that they're there to respect. Um, And that was cool. And, you know, I guess there was one more emotional release. I got to see the boys in the other platoon, and we all gathered around. You know, we had the soldiers' crosses for all for all of them, um, and we all gathered around uh, for a moment, and everyone got to really lose it for a second, completely. And as soon as that was over, it was back to work. You know, it was back to the job. But again, it was like a situation where kind of all that stuff, fucking spitballs, and next next thing you know, you never get to talk to that person again. Ever, ever. So, yeah, it was really, really fucking hard uh, losing Adam. In the military, it's that kind of Viking culture, you know. You, a brother dies, you, you pound beers in the halls. You know, so you can salute their their flight with Freya to the halls of Valhalla. And every death day, you know, we don't celebrate birthdays, really. We celebrate death days. And it was the deal. You'd go to the bar and you'd drink hard. And you'd put a shot up on the bar for them. And next thing I know, I was at the bar maybe every month or every other month. On August 6, 2011, a helicopter named Extortion 17 was shot down near Kabul. 38 people were killed, 31 of which were American military personnel, including 17 Navy SEALs. This was, and still is, the single biggest loss of U.S. life in our nearly 20-year effort in Afghanistan. One year later, on the death day, Josh went to the bar. It was important to us to go salute our bros um, by drinking and I had friends on the helicopter I was out doing what we did I was saluting them I was toasting them I was remembering them and uh, got a DUI that night and you know I remember specifically with the the cop before uh, yeah I actually got the DUI I just wanted to tell him you know why we were out Celebrating, I wasn't looking for a break or anything, or I wasn't, I was just letting him know, you know, I was just like, this is a big date for me. I'm just, this is why we were out. And the cop looked at me, he's like, you're not the only one who's lost somebody. Wow. And I was like, yeah, bro, I didn't just lose somebody. On this day a year ago, I lost 17. And I was, I was livid. Yeah. Um, I couldn't believe that he would to me he was disrespecting my brothers by by saying that to me. Um he was he was right though, you know, I wasn't the only one who's lost somebody, but he was disrespecting them to me and man, I was just unhappy to say the least. And you know, after that night and after the incident and everything, I woke up the next morning with a DUI and I said to myself, I will never remember my brothers strictly with alcohol again i was like from here on out i will 
remember them in a way that they would be proud of, Mm -hmm. in a way that they would respect, and most importantly, in a way that they would want to join me. To commemorate Adam's death day, Josh decided he would climb Lone Eagle Peak in Colorado. It's just a hair under 12,000 feet tall. It is a beaut of a mountain. This solo dramatic shark tooth in the Indian Peaks wilderness on the front range. I wanted the tribute to be meaningful. And so went into this mountain and um, free soloed the route. And it was fucking magical. It was everything I thought it would be. I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, I thought Adam was with me the whole day. You know, I it felt like he was there. Um, and so I got to the top of the mountain and you know, kind of reflected and had a little celebration with myself. And on the way down, I started descending the wrong gully and it started raining. And (laughs) I almost careened off 800 foot, 500 foot cliffs multiple times. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There was this one grassy slope. I was specifically sliding down at like, I don't very fast towards a big cliff. And I was going to go off but I found I, there was a little crack right beside, and I jammed my knee into the crack as I was sliding down and arrested my fall with a knee jam. And, you know, so I said, holy shit. And then I pulled my knee out of the crack, and I looked, and I could see the bone in multiple places. And so it's like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. As I was going down this wrong gully, I found this runner on this boulder that is the largest runner I've ever seen. I've never seen one this big before. It's like, it's gotta be like 10 feet, you know, in diameter. It's huge. And I was like, I'm just going to take that thing with me. And so I pulled it off and I ended up getting completely cliffed out, but I found a crack and a little chalk stone. So I threw the chalk stone in the crack and threw the runner around the chalk stone and the runner made it just far enough to where I could use it to wrap this little section. To me, that was, you know, my, my boys out there with me that day, you know, that yeah. they, they made me run into that absurdly long runner at a completely random location on a pretty not frequently cr- climbed mountain. And, yeah. you know, I held on to that thing and I held on to that value that, that, when I get out there in the mountains and in tribute to them and in the way I recreate, I feel their presence and it's the closest I can get to them. Hmm. It's, it's the place where I can be as close to them as possible. But it also felt like, uh, like a kind of weight was lifted. It was like, it was like, this is the right way to remember them. Yeah. I knew that it was the right way to find a catharsis for the yearning that I have to reconnect with my brothers and everyone else that I've lost. In 2015, Josh started Mission Memorial Day. It's a nonprofit that honors the memory and service of veterans through a specific and incredibly difficult outdoor activity every year on Memorial Day. The first was a Denali climb, where they raised the U.S. flag at 18,000 feet. In 2016, they returned to Denali with the names of 500 fallen soldiers on the flag, and they raised it at the 20,000-foot summit. Then, in 2017, 
Josh and crew retraced the steps of the Bataan Death March in the Philippines. Josh also took on a personal mission. In 2017, he climbed and snowboarded all of Colorado's 54 14,000-foot mountains. Pro skier and ski mountaineer living legend Chris Davenport accomplished this in 2006. He did it in 361 days. Josh did it in 138 days, which is insane and super effing rad. But for Josh, it was never really about the record. There was a lot of days during that where that were uh, really just felt like they were with me and it felt like I was doing, you know, something they'd want me to do because I also I had a flag with me on almost every mountain that has the name of every Navy SEAL killed since 9-11 written on it. And so, you know, over the 600 plus miles and over the 250,000 plus feet of vert that I went on for all these peaks that flag was with me and I carried every single one of their names with me all those times and they drove me to keep going and there's one one day particularly that I could I could remember like drawing on them um there's these two mountains in the Sangre de Cristo range of Colorado called Crestone Peak and Crestone Needle and they're two you know, they call them the part of the dirty dozen, which are like the, the more technical 14ers. And a big storm had just came in two days before. So I knew how the storm came in and I knew it kind of came in a little saturated and things were pretty stable. Um, so I decided to try to go for those two peaks with all that pow because I wanted to ski them in as great a condition as possible. Um, I think it ended up being like an 18 mile day, almost 10,000 feet of vert and two 14ers climbed in a foot and a half of pow. And I climbed Crestone Peak and I skied this line on it in like a foot and a half of pow and I was solo and just those turns were unbelievable. I mean, every time I, I, I set into a turn really hard and just got a huge face shot and, you know, made this wide arcing sweep into the next one and the wind is coming at me so fast you know you, all you can hear is the as you keep picking up speed and going down this line making these beautiful turns and hand drags and then looking back up at the line and seeing that I had just booted straight up this thing for thousands of feet and thinking wow I did that kind of really fast and then thinking wow I skied the shit out of that thing and then wow I've got another one to do <laughs> and so I went over to the other peak which is more technical and it still had all the power in it so booting up it was crazy hard and by this time I think I'm 13 hours into the day and halfway up the line like I start really dogging but I knew what I had in my backpack I knew that in my backpack I had 80 plus names 80 plus dudes that were my fuel, my energy to keep me going and to, to drive me to push this peak. I didn't do it just on my own. Like I had, I had motivation. I had deep motivation that pushed me to go for this thing. Do you believe that you have to live your best life and achieve all of your goals because your friends won't have the chance to? Yes. Yeah, I completely do. Um, and, you know, defining my goals is is hard too because 
yeah, the 14ers project was my goal. But the way I came up with that goal is because, you know, in all my work with wounded vets, I, I see that there's something that if, if you're a veteran who's, who's in a tough space and, uh, you know, maybe on the couch too much or maybe in the bottle too much or just not getting what you want out of life, you might need someone, a fellow vet, to show you that you can go do these big things. You can have that fulfillment in your life again that you used to have in the military. You can live for your brothers. I find more motivation when my goals aren't about me. I I've, I find it easier for myself to wake up every day and push it and keep going if I have a greater meaning behind what I'm trying to achieve. And so, yeah, my life is is completely lived for someone other than myself and mostly for my friends who died. To me, the thing that makes the day perfect is having lived that day out, not for myself, but for someone else. The best ski descent I've ever done was deep in the heart of the Sawich Range in Colorado. I got a group of vets around and we went to recreate uh, something called the Trooper Traverse that the 10th Mountain Division uh, executed before they went to fight in World War II. They trained in Colorado and um, they wanted to do a ski traverse from Leadville to Aspen over three passes over 12,000 feet and through some of the highest mountains in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And on their traverse, which took four days, about 40 miles, a soldier that was on the traverse was the only member of the, the recon platoon that was to be killed in combat later. Uh, his name was Bud Winters, Burdell S. Bud Winters. And in the middle of this traverse is this unbelievably beautiful uh, walled couloir. And I knew that we were going to diverge from this route to try and ski this thing if it had snow. And I got to the base of it. And not only is there snow, but it's fat and it's beautiful and aesthetic. And at the very top of the line is this like 20 foot tall pillar just standing solo on top of this thing. As soon as we gathered under it, I talked to my buddies and I'm like, look, this thing can go. Let's climb this. Let's ski this. So we started booting up the couloir and three of us went up and we had 10th Mountain Division tribute skis, 10th Mountain Division tribute snowboards, splitboards, and we were on this traverse tributing the 10th Mountain Division. And now we were able to climb this couloir that I believe might be a first descent and we got to the top and we shredded the shit out of this line and (laughs) it was beautiful beautiful yes i mean the snow was amazing the couloir was unbelievable it was walled and it was it wasn't too deep but it was deep you know the, the walls of the couloir it was deep enough where you felt walled but you could see out and you could see the range beyond you and it was a bluebird day and everything was great and we got to the bottom of the run the other buddy of mine uh who skied the Kular with us he has this american flag that's super dear to him i think it was it was uh it was in the truck of his friend who was a veteran that uh committed suicide and he was able to bring the flag on on this adventure so it's super dear to him and we have these skis and these splitboards that are a tribute to the 10th mountain division and then at the base of the Kular, we read Bud Winner's Bronze Star Citation from World War II. We read this story aloud to this group of veterans that has, had been to war and knows the actions that are being read. And just 
we dedicated the, the Kular to him. We, we named it Pole Leader Kular because that's what his friends called him because he had a far-reaching pole plant <laughs> it, while he skied. <laughs> yeah, so we called it Pole Leader Kular. And that day, all the aspects of it that led up to its naming of Pole Leader Kular and all that we did in reading his Bronze Star Citation, the weight of, of all that was, God, I can't even explain how happy I was that day because... Yeah. It all added up. And, you know, we don't know Bud Winters. We didn't know any of the guys who were on this traverse. But you know what? To us, we did something really great for that guy's memory that day. And he's a fellow soldier, and he's he's seen – he saw the things we saw before he was unfortunately killed. And, God, it was – that was the perfect day. That was the absolute perfect day in the mountains. I want to know what – we all can do in our own daily lives to honor those we love who have passed away. God, man, I, I really think when you wake up in the morning and your day starts off with burnt coffee or you're late to work or or whatever, you kind of got to realize like, hey, even though my day is pretty shitty right now, at least I still have this day. You know, at least I'm able to get up and go live and do something. And then you know, taking it another step forward by, you know, thinking like, Hey, man, I'm really missing so-and-so who, who died somehow, some way. What can I do to make my pain go away a little bit, but also have it be some way that, that they would want to be with me. And on top of that, tell stories. You know, I, I've told so many stories of Adam Jeremy and Dennis and I tell people these stories because they won't truly die if I keep their memory alive they'll carry on and if I continue to represent myself in in a good good way and and try to do good work and try to do good things that impact people in a, in a in a good way their perception of me is the perception of my brothers and my brothers are the legend and I have to keep them alive and I think anyone can do that you know, because, hey, if you're a kid who lost your dad real young and you want to make sure people knew who your dad was, tell them a story about him. Let him know who that guy was and present yourself in a strong way because who you just told that story to will appreciate the story. And the person that you are is also, in their mind, the person that they just heard the story about. Man, you know, when you look at the timeline of your life, it's like, flagged with these terrible things and these really positive, wonderful things. Um, And the trajectory is, you know, remarkable, truly. And I'm wondering if when you look back from where you are today, all these years later, do you think your father would be proud? Would he give you a, that's my boy? Fuck yes. (laughs) All day long. I truly... I truly believe I'm I'm keeping him proud. I'm doing my absolute best and I'm keeping him proud. I'm keeping my brother-in-law proud who's dead. I'm keeping my best friend's little brother proud who's dead. I'm keeping the next closest thing I had to a father proud who's dead. I'm keeping Jeremy Wise, Adam Smith, Dennis Miranda, Blake McClendon, Jesse Pittman, Caleb Nelson, Ty Woods. I'm keeping them as proud as I possibly can because that's, that's all I want to do. All those guys who I miss, 
I just just want them to be happy for me. And the best way for them to be happy for me is to be proud of me. So yeah, they're proud. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Josh Jesperson. And to learn more about what he's doing, go ahead and check out his Instagram at Josh Jesperson or www.missionmemorial.com. And if you like today's show, well, you just go ahead and get that word out there. Safety Third is kind of like the kiwi in a fruit salad. You just don't know what you're missing until you've had a little bitty taste. So tell your friends, tell your family, even tell your neighbor's weird house plan about the show. Don't be shy, pals. You can find us on Instagram at safety third underscore podcast and on the interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Ignatz Montague. Music by my brother, yes, my brother, Brendan. I am too well-read for my own good, O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, pals. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third. <laughs>